today on the podcast. So excited to have Pastor Phil Kramer back with us. And as we talk about uh, the new series that we've started, We Believe, and specifically the topic of Revelation. How's it going, Pastor Phil? Keith, doing great, brother. I appreciate uh, you having me back. And uh, also just wanted to uh, tell you I very much appreciate the message you brought a week ago Sunday. Listen to that earlier today. Fantastic job, brother. Hey, thank you so much. It was a pleasure, uh, as always, to share the word. And uh, so excited to have you back here at Crossgate. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you've been and, and what God did over the last couple of weeks. Well, I had a great opportunity to travel to Uganda. Uh, there is a Christian school with actually two different campuses, although I use the word campus very loosely because you're literally in a village with huts. Uh, but it's a Christian school uh, called the Village of Hope, Uganda. And uh, one of the campuses is uh, for what we would consider to be primary or elementary age children. And then the other is for high school and also vocational uh, students. And they, they have uh, been existent for about 15 years, really grew out of the wars in, in Uganda from the 90s going forward. And of course, Uganda has been a war-torn land for many years, uh, but just a, a massive displacement of people, millions of people displaced over the course of this warfare, uh, which of course produces many orphans. And uh, about 15 years ago, there was a lady from the United States and a lady from Uganda uh, whom God just brought together miraculously uh, with, with a shared vision for ministering uh, and discipling these children, raising them up and pointing them in a positive direction, and not just spiritually, but, but just in life, uh, vocationally, and all the rest. So bottom line is Village of Hope uh, was founded about 15, 16 years ago. Uh, they, they have come a long way over the course of those years. And uh, man, I, I just I, I got connected with them because a couple in our church was connected with the lady from America uh, years ago. Uh, they went over last fall to check it out, and uh, and then there was this opportunity to travel with a group of pastors from North Carolina and Tennessee. There was eight of us total that went uh, to Uganda over the last couple of weeks, and uh, so we were there to mentor pastors uh, connected with the school, as well as train leaders at the school and uh, teach children and just share Jesus. So it, it was a great, great opportunity and certainly praying about, uh, you know, future partnerships in Africa because we, we currently don't have a presence in Africa, you know, Crossgate Church. So just be, the, the trip allow, has allowed me to pray more informed prayers about uh, what our next steps might be. That's awesome, and uh, so exciting to hear what God is doing um, there in Uganda. Uh, so you were trotting the globe, so to speak, and then you come back here uh, for a full weekend of ministry here at Crossgate, um, including you know kicking off this new series, which we'll get to in a minute. But on Saturday, we hosted an inaugural uh, disc golf tournament that had over 70 participants. Is that right? That's right, 72 participants. Uh, it was a shotgun start, so they had four uh, players at each hole when they kicked it off, uh, two-person teams. Ted Smethers, of course, is the mastermind behind all things disc golf at Crossgate, and uh, and he and a few other guys put that thing together. It was a great opportunity. As we shared on Sunday morning, uh, Ted shared a little bit of his testimony and gave glory to God uh, to all the participants uh, after I gave a word of opening prayer. So, yeah, it's a great opportunity as a witness and uh, generating gospel conversations uh, but certainly, it, it, the, our disc golf course is a great 
a connecting point with our community, especially among people who don't go to church. Yeah, that's great. I love seeing uh, folks all throughout the week uh, out there on the campus um, and hopefully having those opportunities to have those gospel conversations. Well, we mentioned the new series that we've started uh, called We Believe, and this past week you talked about the topic of revelation, um, and uh, so we're going to get into that a little bit. And so uh, you talked a little bit about general revelation, which is uh, the witness that we have in creation that there is a God. Um, that was great great, great point uh, out of uh, a lot of coming out of Romans chapter one. But Pastor Phil, what would you say to those who might argue that the existence of the world doesn't necessarily point to a creator? Uh, for example, a humanist worldview uh, that would say that uh, nature has always existed and will always exist. It has no creator. Uh, everything in this world is just a result of natural processes that randomly occurred. Well, great question, Keith, and it's certainly very uh, realistic to ask that question because our people are rubbing shoulders with uh, people who espouse what's called naturalism. That's another worldview. Uh, our people are espousing, uh, or excuse me, rubbing shoulders with people who espouse that perspective and that worldview all the time. Uh, you know, and I went back to a message that I gave in a series we did a year or two ago called In the Beginning, where we looked at Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and uh, just looked at a lot of different ways that Genesis 1 through 3 are highly relevant for this world today. And, and, and our, our listeners can find that series on our YouTube and Vimeo pages. Again, it's called In the Beginning, a study of Genesis 1 through 3. But I was reminded of a couple quotes from that message. Uh, Lee Strobel, in an excellent book called A Case for a Creator, which I would encourage our people to read, he said, Naturalism believes that nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. Chaos produces order. Unconsciousness produces consciousness, and non-reason produces reason. And then again, C.S. Lewis, he said, An egg that comes from no bird is no less miraculous than a bird that has existed from eternity. Somehow, somewhere, the possibility of the supernatural must be granted. Okay, so at the end of the day, you've got to choose your, your miracle, right? Uh, and I don't remember who said this, but off the top of my head, it just popped in my head, uh, where they said... Um, you know, either you believe in the virgin birth of a savior or the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle, right? So Isaiah 45, 18, God just kind of throws it out there and drops the microphone. He says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Microphone drop, right? Fred Hoyle famously said, and, and with tongue-in-cheek, probability of life arising on earth by purely natural means without special divine aid is less than the probability that a flight-worthy Boeing 747 should be assembled by a hurricane roaring through a junkyard, right? So I, I, at the end of the day, man, I, I go back to what we said Sunday morning uh, in, in concert with Romans chapter 1, but the fact is that people who, who look at the creation and say, I don't see any evidence for God whatsoever— they're just lying to themselves. Uh, it's it's self-deception. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that's interesting about that passage in Romans chapter 1 is it talks about um, those who look at the creation and don't believe um, that there is a creator, they have suppressed the truth. And there, there's almost a um, you know an, an active tense to that suppressing. Like you're, It's like you're pushing it down. Like it's within you but you are suppressing it um, and denying uh, what is clearly seen. Uh, so good point there about general revelation. But you also talked about 
special revelation, which you summed up by saying God wrote a book, uh, which is the Bible. Um, And you mentioned some pretty staggering statistics that set the Bible apart from any other historical text. I thought that was incredible. Um, But it begs the question, if the Bible was hand-copied over and over and over again, over thousands of years, Phil, isn't it possible that what we have today is full of errors and doesn't you know, accurately represent what the writers actually wrote? Well, it's possible, uh, but when we start to break it down, we realize there's significant amount of evidence to uh, suggest that what we have in our hands today is, is an accurate reflection of what the New Testament and Old Testament writers actually wrote. So first of all, uh, the, the documents, the original documents themselves, say, for example, the letter to the Romans or uh, the letter to the Philippians, okay, the original documents of the New Testament, uh, those documents would have been called an autograph. So we talk about the autographs of, of the, the New Testament books. And nobody believes that we still have those. Nobody. I mean, no, not even the most conservative of, of uh, theologians would say that we actually have the autographs. So what we have to do is we have to take all of the evidence that's available to us and that has been available over the last couple thousand years, and we have to piece together uh, what what we believe was the contents of those autographs, right? Because, again, as we said on Sunday morning, that, that different authors, different times, all the rest, but how do we piece that back together? The, the discipline of that has traditionally been called textual criticism, Although I generally don't like to use the word criticism because it sounds very negative, as though you know we're, we're somehow putting the Bible on trial, I, tip, I typically use the the word analysis. Okay, so let's just talk about textual analysis. Textual analysis, and as we said, the New Testament, you've got thousands of manuscripts floating around. Okay, and not all of them are the entire book. Some of them are just fragments, right? But taking all of the manuscript evidence into account both internal and external evidence, believe it or not, and of course I know you believe it because you're a man of God just like I am, what we have in our Bible today, just take the New Testament for example, we have every reason to be absolutely confident, and even I would say the liberal scholars agree with this, what we have in our hands is the New Testament today in your Bible and my Bible is over 99.5% accurate reflection of what was written in the autographs. Okay, let, let me explain how this works. So we have all these different manuscripts, but not, not all manuscripts are created equal. Okay, first of all, you have we have some manuscripts that date all the way back to almost the very end of the first century. So you're talking just decades after the actual manuscripts would have been written and, and circulated and so forth. Other manuscripts that we have are much more recent. You know, maybe maybe it was copied in uh, the year 8600 or the or the year 8200 or something. So clearly, the the ones that go further back that have less of a less of a time that has elapsed between the the writing of the the autograph and the copying of the manuscript likely would be more accurate, right? So there's different aspects of, of textual analysis, or like I said, some people call it textual criticism, that, that receives more weight than others. Uh, how we see this manifested most of all is when you, when you compare some of the translations that we have today with some of the other translations, okay? Primarily being, say, your King James and your New King James versus, say, the ESV, NIV, 
you know, any, any of the uh, Christian Standard Bible, any of the what we would call the modern translations, okay? Some of the, the most obvious places where you see a significant difference would be, for example, 1 John 5, where there is a, if you read the King James of 1 John 5, there is a clear, loud and proud Trinitarian statement in 1 John 5 that you don't necessarily see in some of the uh, more modern translations. Again, the ESV, NIV, that type of thing. Or uh, if, if you look at the story in Acts chapter 8 of, uh, of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, in the NIV, the ESV, and the other modern translations, there's like a whole verse or two that are just completely missing. I mean, it skips from like verse 35 to ther- verse 38 or something. You know, I, I'm saying that off the top of my head. And of course, people see that and they say, oh, well, the NIV and the ESV, they must not be true to the Word of God because they've just deleted verses altogether. So what's behind that? Again, your, your textual analysis helps you to understand what's going on there. Uh, in that, when, when the King James translation was created, it was in the 1600s, right? Well, later on, 150, 250 years later, uh, you had more manuscripts discovered in, in Alexandria and in the Egyptian desert where things get preserved a lot longer. And what they found was they found manuscript evidence of the New Testament that dated way before the manuscripts that the King James translators had. So the, the King James translators, they did the best they could with what they had at the time. But since that time, we have discovered more manuscripts that give us a more accurate representation of what was in the actual autographs. Okay, so all of that goes in to say that, again, what we have in our Bibles today reflects our absolute best evidence that we have on hand, and I believe demonstrates that God superintended the the transmission of of the New Testament and the whole Bible, for that matter, so that we can be absolutely certain that what we have in our hands is a reflection, direct reflection and representation of what God had the original authors write. Yeah, that's really good and it's very helpful uh, information there. Uh, so, a lot of times when when we're talking about scripture, you hear this word used um, that is inerrant. Um, so, what is what does inerrant mean when we're describing the Bible? Well, that's an excellent question because the the doctrine of inerrancy is is one of the cardinal uh, truths of the evangelical faith. Right, I mean, not everybody would consider themselves an inerrantist. In fact, there's a lot of people who hate the word inerrancy. I personally love it. Uh, the word inerrant simply implies a lack of error and complete truthfulness. Uh, Don Carson, who, of course, you know, was my uh, PhD supervisor in Chicago uh, several years ago, said inerrancy is merely a way of saying that what, wherever there is a truth claim, in fact, God's words are true. Okay, so anytime God, God, God makes a claim about anything, whether it's science, history, uh, theology, anything that's contained in the Bible, it is a true statement, uh, which I think we see that right in the Scripture anyway. What does the Bible say? Psalm 12, verse 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And then even this Sunday morning, we went back, which I believe you quoted this one as well, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. So in other words, God cannot lie. God is pure and true. Therefore, whatever God says is 100% true and pure. So going back, though, technically, inerrancy regards the original autographs. 
Uh, and of course, we've already seen that, that the Bibles we have today, while we don't have those original autographs in hand, are accurate representations of the autographs. Now, let's, let's kind of examine this at the street level, okay? An inerrantist would say that when the Bible claims that Jesus uh, was virgin born, which really means that, that he was, it, it, it's not so much the virgin birth, it's the virgin conception, right? He was conceived of the Virgin Mary. Uh, we take that for what, it, for what it says. The Bible says that Jesus had no biological father uh, and, and, and that he was created when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and, and he was conceived. We take that to be 100% true because the Bible makes that statement. Uh, there'd be some people who would say, well, that's not something that, that, that's possible. It's not repeatable. It's not observable today. So therefore, it could not have happened back then. And, uh, and so they say, no, it didn't happen. Uh, for us, with that, that's, that's a non-negotiable. I mean, the Bible makes a, a truth claim about the origins and the birth of Jesus Christ, and we take that to be 100% true. Uh, and that, that's, that, that's kind of a, an outworking of, of what inerrancy is all about. We, we simply take God at his word, just like we sang on Sunday morning. I take you at your word, or however that song goes, right? Yeah, yeah, I didn't Which know. Which I love that song. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's like that, that could be like the inerrantist's national anthem. That's right. We take God at his word. That's right. We didn't know we were getting a free concert today. No oh, ticket it's not free. <laughs> no ticket required. Just subscribe. That's right. All right. So uh, thank you for explaining uh, inerrancy and what that means. Um, and so absolutely, we, we think the Bible is without error. But what would you say to people that, you know, maybe even would point to the translations that you uh, mentioned and the difference in some of those, um, and even claim that the Bible contradicts itself at times so that it cannot be without error? Yeah, so uh, whenever someone says, what about all these contradictions in the Bible? Okay, the first thing I say, and not trying to sound snarky, is, well, name one. Because not always, but in many cases, people who want to bring up the idea of contradictions, they don't actually know any of them. I mean, they, they, maybe they've heard that there's contradictions, but then when you actually say, well, okay, well, let's talk about one. They, they do not have the ability to say, well, actually, in Mark chapter 8, verses da-da-da-da-da-da. So they're not a chapter and verse critic. Now, if, if they are, I'll say, great, let's talk about it. I'm not afraid of what's in the Bible because I know God wrote a book, and so we'll talk about it. In many cases, what happens is that someone is pointing out a different perspective that you're getting from a particular uh, biblical writer that is not a contradiction, right? So we have four Gospels, and there are times when people will put their fingers on something in the Gospels and they'll say, oh, look, here it is. There's a contradiction between John and Luke or between Matthew and Mark. Well, let's look at it. And what you see in many cases, it, it, it's not an exclus exclusionary contradiction, right? I mean, in order to have a contradiction, it's not that two people describe the same thing in different ways, right? Because there's all kinds of reasonable explanations for that. But rather, you would have to have Luke saying, this is not what happened, but rather this happened. You know, you know what I'm saying? So to, 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 this happened to the exclusion of what Matthew is saying. And so I, I, I love to talk about that kind of stuff because 99.9% .9 of the time, there's nothing there. Uh, and, and yet, I, I, yes, I will admit that there are a few places in the Bible where you have to really stop and think about, okay, what's going on here, right? But in terms of the Bible being full of contradictions, I just, I don't see it. 
Yeah, and and I would say that you're you're pretty accurate because a lot of the conversations that I've had with folks who mention contradictions in the Bible, they're not even sure um, what those are. They they've heard that somewhere. They've you know kind of subscribed to that view, and so uh, um, yeah, great great point. Well, we talked about you know different versions of the Bible or different translations. Um, one that is commonly talked about is the Catholic Bible. Um, so why does the Catholic Bible include some books that aren't in most Bibles? And who, who kind of determined which books should be in there and which ones should not? Well, that's a great question also because, uh, you know, we're, we are more aware of what's out in the world today because of, uh, you know, our access online and so forth. And, and we just, we, we, we tend to be exposed to more things now than we used to be. So I, I, again, I mean, I'm not afraid of anything that's out there because I know God's word is true. And, uh, and when you actually dive into the history a little bit of how things come about, you realize, okay, this is why we have these books in our Bible and some of these other books are not in our Bible. So first of all, whenever we talk about what's in the Bible, we're talking about the word canon. Not canon like boom, but, or you know, big gun, but it, it, a, a, the word canon comes from a word that means ruler or yardstick. It's almost like a, a measuring rod kind of thing. And, uh, and yes, it's true, the Catholic Bible... Uh, does contain uh, some books known as the Apocrypha that our Bibles, meaning the, the Protestant Bibles, don't have. Uh, there are seven specific books uh, in, in particular. So going back, let's talk about the Hebrew Bible for a second. So in the Hebrew Bible, uh, which is kind of what we would consider to be the Old Testament, okay, it has 24 books. Now, our Old Testament has 39 books. The reason being is because in the Hebrew Bible, for example, Samuel is just one book whereas we have 1st and 2nd Samuel, uh, and Kings is 1st and 2nd Kings, and so forth and so on. So there's, there's 39 books in the Protestant Old Testament. Hebrew Bible has 24. Now about 200 to 250 years before Jesus was born, uh, there were some Greek scholars who decided that they wanted to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. Uh, so they, they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek Old Testament, and that that translation was called the Septuagint, which really just means 70. Uh, the, the tradition is that there were 70 Greek scholars that got together, and they and separately and independently of one another, they all translated the Old Testament into Greek, and guess what? All 70 copies were absolutely identical. No, no variation whatsoever. You know, And they said, oh, man, it's a miracle. Well, I'm not saying that that's what happened. I'm just saying that's the, that's the tradition. But the bottom line is that, again... Two to three hundred years before Jesus was born, they translated uh, the, the Hebrew Old Testament that did not have these seven additional books into the Greek version or translation of the Old Testament, but they included those seven books that were kind of floating around out there. I'm not saying they, they weren't existent. I'm just simply saying they were not part of the Hebrew Bible. You know, the Hebrews did not say these are official books of God's word, but they but they kind of brought them up under the Septuagint. And they included them in there, okay? The Septuagint became kind of the, the, the Old Testament for most Christians uh, because that, that was just, it was, it was in the common language of, across the Mediterranean. A lot, of those, a lot of those Christians that were coming to Jesus for Asia Minor and, uh, and in, in, uh, in Greece and so forth and even in Rome, they did not, I mean, they, they didn't even know Hebrew anyway. So, so the, the Septuagint was kind of like the, the quote-unquote Christian Old Testament of that time. So fast forward about 500 years. So roughly 300 A.D., uh, a, a, an early church leader named Jerome translated the Hebrew Bible 
and the New Testament into Latin. All right, and and that translation was known as the Vulgate or Vulgate, and and that was that was based again on the Hebrew Bible as well as the Greek New Testament, and he translated the whole thing from soup to nuts in, into Latin. But he said, "Man, what are we going to do about these seven books that are in the Septuagint, but they're not in the Hebrew Bible?" Well, they've kind of been around for a while, and they they've been a part of kind of the Christian Old Testament, so. I guess we can roll them up under this, this Vulgate as well. So, so the Vulgate included those books that were not in the Hebrew Bible, okay? And, and that just became part of, of course, the Vulgate became the, the Catholic Bible in a sense, right? Because the Catholic Church was all about the Latin, okay? Now, during the Reformation, you're talking, you're fast-forwarding now a thousand-plus years, Protestant reformers decided that they would not include those books because, remember, the Reformation was all about sola scriptura. We're going back to the Bible, man. Let's just take this back to the Bible and, and just, uh, you know, just throw all the, all the extra trappings in the trash. But what are we going to do with these seven books that, that, that were not in the Hebrew Bible, but they are in the Vulgate? In this, you know, they've been around for a thousand plus years now. Okay, so different reformers. Uh, approach that in different ways. Martin Luther, who really, I mean, when you think about it, Martin Luther did not stray that far from the Catholic Church. Clearly, he, he, he stepped outside of it, but some reformers went much further than Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, okay, I'll include them in my Bible, but I'm going to put them in a separate section between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I'm going to call that the Apocrypha. Okay. Now, that said, clearly, our, our Protestant Bibles today that you can buy in any Bible bookstore even Lifeway, if Lifeway still had brick-and-mortar stores, you know how, how it goes, uh, you, you would not find in most of the Protestant Bibles these apocryphal books. Now, Catholics today, and again, being a former Catholic myself, I, 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 I would describe the, the, the apocryphal books as Catholics would say they are edifying works that are not part of the official canon of Scripture. So Catholics would not say, hey, the apocrypha is on par with Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but at the same time, they're pretty important, and we're going to keep them in. But let's keep in mind that that some practices, such as uh, praying for the dead with a view to their afterlife purification, uh, that th that have become part of the Catholic practice. Guess where they find that? Maccabees, you know, in in, in the Apocrypha. So so the fact that there's some practices that are being taken out of this, and 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 they're they're seeing these books as normative. To me, that's kind of dangerous because those books clearly were not considered to be the Word of God but by the Jews. Otherwise, they would have included them. So I, I hope that rabbit trail that I've, that I've kind of taken us down over the last couple of minutes uh, gives, gives a, a somewhat simple explanation as to why there are certain books in uh, the Catholic Bible that are not in the Protestant Bible. Yeah, that, that's really good and, and really interesting information and, and something uh, that we could, you know, talk about for a really long time, but we are just about out of time for today. But before we go, um, it does beg one more question, because I know a lot of our listeners, they may have heard of these extra-biblical books um, before, uh, these books like um, the Gospel of Thomas, the Book of Enoch, and so forth. Uh, is that kind of what you're talking about? What about those types of books? So those books were also floating around out there in, in the ancient world, uh, books that were written by Jews, that, that were written by uh, folks you know, in those days that were not included in the Bible, either by the Jews or the Christians, uh, largely because of their content. 
you know, there's there's all kinds of books floating around out there in the ancient world, and every once in a while you hear about them and say, oh, scholars have uncovered this book, and it, it, it I mean, even the Da Vinci Code, you know, some of the basic things about Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene and that type of thing, I mean, it, it comes out of some of these books that clearly were not even in the same ballpark theologically as as the books that God included, uh, for example, in the New Testament. I mean, you've got the Gospel of Peter, for example, uh, you know, where he talks about the cross kind of walking and floating and talking through the air. You know, just some crazy kind of zany things that weren't even close. The other thing that, that some people love about, say, the Gospel of Thomas and so forth, is it, is it primarily just contained uh, moral teachings from Jesus. It doesn't mention anything about the cross in terms of crucifixion, the resurrection, uh, which, of course, is, is, is just central to the Christian message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so sometimes people like to say, well, you know what? I mean, let's just focus on Jesus as a good moral teacher, not as a, as a bloody dying Savior, because after all, look, Gospel of Thomas doesn't talk about the resurrection and the cross, so evidently it wasn't that important. Anyway, we could go on and on, man. Maybe we'll have to do the podcast of the podcast. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Hey, well, uh, I'm so excited about kicking off this series, We Believe, and uh, on the uh, the sermons and the uh, the podcast to come. Surely there will be lots and lots to talk about. So, Pastor Phil, thank you for your time today and looking forward to next time. Thanks, Keith. God bless you, brother. Thank you for listening to the More and Better Disciples podcast, a ministry of Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. To learn more, join us on our website, crossgate.org.